Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I hope that you have the little guide there in which you can write down the four word traits of David that we have been learning, and we're going to finish that today. We're going to run beyond the 70 lines that you have, so you can write in the margins of it or somewhere else. When they were prepared, I didn't see the 75 yet. Hebrews chapter 11 is the listing of what we call the hall of faith at times. The elders obtained a good report by faith because they did exploits, as Daniel chapter 11 describes them, and great things for the Lord. We read in verse 32, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith, and it goes on and describes some of the great things they did. David here is in the hall of faith. He's one of the great cloud of witnesses. That He's in the stadium seats with us on the track. And we're running our Christian race, and he's watching us. He's run it before us. We want to run it like he ran his race. The Lord led us by convicting me several weeks ago to lead you on a study of the traits of David that would show us what made him special so that we could learn the heart of God, the life of David, and adopt some of those traits ourselves. I want you to catch a vision. I have wanted you to catch a vision, being like the man God loved and told us so much about. The chief aim of religion, especially our religion, is to learn how to please God better. Every day, you make all kinds of choices based on your priorities. David had exceptional priorities. His priorities were to delight and glorify and praise God, to be in his house, to inquire of his beauty, and the words of God. Psalm 119, written by David, and his great delight in the words of God. There is only value in this sermon series, like there is in any preaching, if you repent and change to conform your life to what the Bible says. Each point, each trait ought to be answered or responded to with the words, am I like that? Do others know that I'm like that? Because see, others have a better perspective of you than you have of you. Your perspective of you is through a deceitful and desperately wicked heart that is always thinking, you're pretty good stuff. And so it's good, what do others see in me and do I project and show the character of David? rather than ask, thinking that we are like him. All young men should aspire and desire to be like this prince before God and other men. And so should young women. You can be a female, David. You can have a heart like David's and be a girl. All men are not equal. David exceeded his brothers. There were eight brothers in that family. The other seven you never read about again. They were relatively worthless. They didn't do anything for the Lord. They mocked him. Later they had to follow him, and they did so willingly, the Bible tells us. But David exceeded his own brothers. David exceeded King Saul, whom God had gifted to be king. David exceeded his nephew Joab. 
He exceeded his son Solomon. He was better than these men. We want to be the best for the Lord's sake. It's the Lord's grace that even caused us to even think about being better. And it's his power that can make us, make us best. We are told in the New Testament, and I know that this language is hard for some to bear because it's not consistent with the effeminate generation in which we live. The Apostle Paul said, they that run in a race run all. Meaning everyone gets to participate, but there are no trophies handed out by the Lord for participation. That's only true in Little League or T-ball or soccer for children in America of this generation. It never happened in the past either. You don't get a trophy for participation. You only get a trophy if you win. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. It's God's word to us. So that's why I use the word best. Why would we want to be better? Let's be best. Let's win our race. We are running our race every day. We're running our race right now. How well you pay attention and how prepared you are and attentive you are to the Word of God and how much you change as a result of our time in the house of the Lord. God identified David for us as the man after his own heart. I didn't pick David from this long list of Bible heroes and say, this is my favorite. David was God's favorite. There is no second place. There is no one else that comes close to David being described as the man after God's own heart in both Testaments. God delighted in David. We know that David delighted in God, but God delighted in David. And we seek to know the reasons why, so that he might delight in us. More details of David's life from youth to death are recorded. And, And you know I've said some wild statements. No one's tried to prove me wrong. Try to prove me wrong with the density of God's word. We have been told more in God's holy word about David than all other men combined. You don't know anything about anyone else in the Bible. As far as their heart, their sins, their passion, their praise, their prayer, their thanksgiving, their fears, their hope, their loss of hope, their discouragement, their enemies. You know all that about David and you know it in great depth and detail. And I want you to think about that because I hope this pulpit always reflects the emphasis of God's Word, and this is the emphasis of God's Word. Now in Hebrews 11, if you just went through Hebrews 11, David gets a small place there. But in the rest of the Bible, he got the big place. Abraham got the big place in Hebrews chapter 11. But David far exceeds Abraham as far as the man after God's own heart and the details that were told about how David thought, and David prayed, and David praised, and David sinned, and how he confessed his sins. You don't know anything like that about Abraham. Because we're not told. God chose this man for us, and so he convicted me to preach him to you. Biographies are good motivational material. But this extensive biography in God's library is inspired. God and all Israel love David. And this is a goal. For each person here, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor than silver and gold. It's a choice every day 
for you to make your decisions in such a way that you please God and please men and win their loving favor. That's the goal for us. And David did it so well. Everyone loved David. When David met King Saul, King Saul loved David. The Bible tells us so. When David met King Saul's family, Jonathan loved David. Jonathan was 25 years older and the prince to take the throne. But he loved David and made a covenant with him that he might be David's right-hand man when David was king. Now listen, that just doesn't make sense. Michael loved David, Saul's daughter. Achish, king of the Philistines, loved David. Hiram, king of Tyre, loved David. The king of the Moabites kept David's father and mother when it was not safe for them to be in Israel because of King Saul. Everyone loved David. They sang their songs about Saul killing his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Gittites followed him. For the 20th time, 600 men that graduated from Goliath's high school followed David and lived in Jerusalem. They're called the Gittites. A Gittite is an inhabitant or citizen of the city of Gath. It is Goliath of Gath. Unbelievable. How could everybody love this man? That's one of his traits. The effect that he had on others by his godly character. Lord, help us to embrace it and to learn it and to put it into practice. David had heinous sins in his life, and the Bible records them. There's over 10 of them. You can think of two or three initially, but if you'll study the outline that's been prepared, there's more, yet he was still God's favorite. What hope for sinners! Yes, we want to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ most of all, But Jesus Christ was sinless, and you are not. David has given us an example of a sinner that God forgave, and forgave abundantly. And yet we can see chastening effects in his life, but it did not discourage him. He pressed on. When David confessed his sins, he believed he was forgiven, though the heinous, profane, aggravated sins of adultery and murder He jumped up and worshipped and pressed on. They did not destroy him. Sins shouldn't destroy you. They already tried to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, and he buried them all beneath his love and blood. Jesus is the son of David by both of his parents. He is the son of David biologically by his mother Mary. Luke chapter 3 is her genealogy. Jesus is the son of David legally by his Father, legal father Joseph, Matthew chapter 1's genealogy. He is known as the son of David throughout the Bible, including the last chapter of the Bible. David is the father of Jesus. Jesus is the son of David, the root and offspring of David. Jesus is not ashamed for that title. He is, the Bible opens in the, the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Ends in Revelation twenty two sixteen, the root and offspring of David. Jesus wasn't ashamed of him. You know, there are some men that want to mock David because he has sins recorded in the Bible. Men that do that aren't even in the same universe with him. Right. And they ought to be ashamed of themselves. God forgave David and God loved David. And not those that would mock the one that was after his own heart. If you mock the man after God's own heart, then you're mocking God. 
because that's what God said of David. Okay, let's go to trait number 68. We've done, covered 67, and we're going to finish this today. Trait number 68, he understood God's chastening. Your four words for trait number 68, he understood God's chastening. Chastening is when God punishes us for our sins, not to destroy us, but to change us and to get us back into the way of righteousness. Chastening is when he comes after us and gives us some afflictions to bring us back to himself. It is an expression of love. The Bible says it's an expression of love. That we should not despise the chastening of the Lord for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And when the Lord chastens us, and we know it's chastening, that he's doing something afflictive in our lives to bring us back to him, it is love. It is, I want you back, so I'm going to encourage you to come back. And the encouragement can be negative events in our lives. But to get us back to him, that is love. David understood God's chastening. This is trait number 68. David did not curse God. David was chased like a rabid dog among the Philistines. David had to live among the Philistines because of Saul chasing him for about 15 years. David had to live in caves. He never cursed God because of circumstances. God killed the baby that Bathsheba and he conceived in adultery. He never cursed God for taking a baby. Ever. Do you know what he did do with God for taking his baby? He worshipped. Whenever I hear that someone wants to curse God or has the slightest evil thought arise against God for touching one of their children, you have met a devil's heart. David never did anything like that. Those children are not yours. They've never been yours. They've always been his. Why did you ever conceive one if you didn't understand that? They're not yours. They're God's. David understood that. And David worshipped. David didn't curse. David didn't quit. David could have got up when that baby died and raised his fist at God like so many do and say, that's not fair. I'm the one that sinned. Why did you kill the baby? Because God is always perfect and right and just and holy in everything he does. Amen. He understood God's chastening. Chased around by King Saul, waited so many years before the throne was on his head and he was, the, the crown was on his head and he was on the throne of Israel, and yet there was no curse, there was no quit in David. He understood God's chastening. Now let's turn to Psalm 119 and some of Zach Pipkin's favorite verses. Psalm 119. That I'll just say it because you'll all be thinking it. Anyway, Psalm 119. David's sins have been listed in this outline, and I have preached them to you. And they can be found under the trait, sins didn't stop him. But he understood God's chastening, and he wrote about it often. Psalm 119, look at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Don't we all know this? Those of us that have walked with the Lord, don't we know that when he just sent us prosperity, we tend to end up astray? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. The Lord gets us back on the right path. 
You should know these variations and varying from the path of God in your life and how He brought you back. Verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. What? How can affliction be good? It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. If that's what it takes to get us to learn God's Word and to do them better in our lives, thank you, Lord. You want to be very careful in what I'm about to say. You want to be very careful, but if your spirit and your heart is right, Lord, bring it on. If it's affliction that will draw me closer to you, I have a better solution. Lord, I repent for not being close to you, and I'm all yours right now. And I'm contrasting the two. Because sometimes we know that affliction has drawn us closer to him, and so we should say, Lord, if that's what it takes, bring it. But I'll tell you how else David would pray, and we're going to get to it in a minute. He would pray, do not do it in thy sore displeasure or in thy wrath. Do it in thy mercy. That's why I'm making the comparison. I hope that we would all get our hearts right, right, right now with the Lord so we wouldn't need His chastening. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. In Psalm 119, you could in some way highlight verses 67, 71, and 75, for they are about chastening and affliction. He counted chastening a blessing in his life and a partner to learn God better. This is taught in several places. He knew that chastening was good, and he knew that chastening was not the judgment that the wicked get. Look at Psalm 94 so I can show you this. Psalm 94, two verses here in this psalm. David understood God's chastening, and if we learn David, we'll learn to submit to God's chastening and not to curse, not to quit, but to learn, to appreciate it, to thank God for it, and to respond to it. The faster you respond, the sooner the belt is lifted. The rod, or whatever, the scourge, is whatever is being used. The sooner you can learn the lesson, humble yourself and repent, it's lifted. Do you remember the book of Job? In chapter 36, Elihu's anger against Job is boiling over, and he said, Job, you're speaking like a wicked man. Don't you understand that if you'd have kept your integrity like you had in the beginning, this would already be over, and you'd be sitting at a table eating fatness with your children around it? If you continue, God's going to cut you off. Job 36. Let's learn the lesson quickly when God teaches us something. Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. We learn that from Psalm 119, that if you're going to be taught by the Lord, he's got to chasten you to get you to submit to his commandments. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Is it a blessing to be spanked by God? Right. It's a blessing. It's done perfectly. Does he ever give you one more, one more stripe than you need? No. Does he ever give you one less stripe than you need? No. He gives you the exact number of stripes you need for the right end if we respond properly. And the response is described in Hebrews chapter 12. Lift up the hands. Lift up the feeble knees and arms. Come on. Get back to life. That affliction and that chasing that was in your life was for your good. It says that fathers in the world chasten children for their own pleasure. 
Now, this is God comparing himself to you and me. Oh, yeah, boys, I enjoyed every minute of it. You know better than that, but Hebrews 12 says, They, for their pleasure, chastened us. He, for our profit. Never too much, never too little for our profit. Thank you, Lord. Right there. Psalm 94, 12. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity. God wants to lift the paddle and give you rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. Let me finish chastening you so that I can bury your enemies. That happened in the church at Corinth. In the church at Corinth, we are told in 1 Corinthians 11.32 that when we are chastened, we're judged of the Lord out of love that we should not be condemned with the world. Chastening is evidence of eternal life. The world doesn't get chastened. They go to hell. They're condemned. We're chastened, and it's just God bringing us back to him. David understood all these things. Look at Psalm 38 and verse 1. Psalm 38 and verse 1 to back up something that I just said to you, and that is that when you say to God, if you say it to the Lord, bring it on, if that's what it takes. Do all of you know this? That when you were closest to the Lord, it was because of a negative event in your life, usually, that forced you to depend upon the Lord to a greater degree and to come after Him with greater passion and dedication than at other times? You should know that. It's a shame about us. It's part of the weakness and faults of our character. Here's how we can pray. O Lord, Psalm 38 and verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. We do not want him coming after us in an angry way. And sometimes he was angry with Israel, and the consequences were very severe. We do not want that. God's afflictions are good. Learn the lesson fast and respond rightly. Hebrews 12 is the description. It's been taught before. We need to keep moving on. Not all afflictions are chastening. Not everything that happens in your life that's negative is chastening. If you think so, you are like three other men, and they're not named David. The three other men are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Job's three miserable comforters. Those things happening in Job's life were not chastening at all, yet the three of them, for chapter after chapter after chapter, accused Job of secret sins that God was exposing and punishing him for. They were wrong, wrong, wrong. The solution to Job is Job chapter 33 and verse 12, God is greater than man. Job, God can do anything he wants to you. He doesn't need a reason. His reason is himself. He's greater than you. Elihu explained, and it wasn't for sin. Now Job, it, Job showed his sinfulness as we work our way through the book of Job, and Job repented in the end and put a hand over his mouth and repented in dust and ashes. But don't say that everything God is sending your way is chastening. He may just be refining you. and That's not chastening you for sin. That's just to make you better. He may be just letting you taste a few evil consequences of a foolish choice that you made so that you won't make that stupid choice again. That's not chasing you for sin. That's just letting you go to the school of hard knocks. Okay, number 69. 
There's so much that, do you know how long we could preach on chastening? We, I didn't even go to Hebrews 12 because I was afraid of it. But it says, lift up the hands that hang down and straighten those feeble knees and get up and run your race again. Right. Okay, number 69, balanced prayer and action. Balanced prayer and action. Balanced prayer and action. Number 69, David rejected prayer without effort. That's fatalism. David rejected effort without prayer. That's humanism. We go down the crown of the road. We don't want the ditch on either side. He trusted God to bless his sling to kill Goliath. Not some divine disease like Herod got in Acts chapter 12. David just didn't pray for God to give Goliath some disease like Herod got in Acts 12 for killing James and trying to kill Peter. He trusted God to bless his sling. He had a little piece of rawhide with a little pouch in the middle of it. And he knew that with that and the Lord's blessing, they too could work together and accomplish something big. He balanced prayer and action. He rejected Saul's untested armor, though that was the best around. He chose proven means. These things affect every part of our lives. Professionally, financially, maritally. Listen, we don't... Listen, do you, do you think that Naomi was a fatalist? Nope. Naomi was a fatalist. Ruth, come here. Let's pray, girl. Let's hold hands. Let's pray. Lord, in your timing, however, whenever, whomever, would you please bring a husband for this woman? Come on. I haven't taught you that way. Right. Do I believe in prayer? Absolutely. What did Naomi do? Ruth, come here. Let me tell you a few things. Go take a bath. Use my best cologne. Put on that special dress. Sneak down there tonight to the threshing floor of Boaz. Crawl in there and lie at his feet. And when he asks you what you're doing down there, propose. <laughs> Is that the Bible story or not? Am I making something up? David didn't say, brothers, I came to bring you some cheeses, but let's kneel down and pray for God to do something about Goliath. He said, is there not a cause? Amen. While he's reaching in his pocket and pulling out his leather, his uh, rawhide thong with a pouch in the middle of it. Some of you should have seen David Taylor, named after David, on a mountain peak in Colorado this past week, slinging with his David sling, stones out into space from a mountain peak in Colorado. I got to see it. We have updates in this church, don't we? Amen. Okay, you'll see it. Send me a reminder. David did not have a slingshot. David had a sling, remember? A sling could throw a projectile the size and weight of a billiard ball a quarter of a mile. They did not throw these little pebbles a little pebble did not hurt Goliath. If you get hit by a billiard ball that has enough foot-pounds of energy behind it to throw it a quarter of a mile, I don't care what you're wearing, it's going to hurt. But it hit him right here. And it hurt his, it hurt his complexion and face. But, the, but David balanced prayer and action. 
He went out there and faced Goliath and said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts of Israel. He was counting on angels. He was counting on the God of those angels. He did it in prayer, but he did it with action. Is there not a cause? Someone needs to shut that ugly mouth up. And so David went and did something about it. David balanced prayer and action throughout his life. He did not wait to get better. He didn't go out back and practice more. He didn't wait to improve for circumstances to improve or the odds to get better. He went with God. The balance of these two things, God's blessing on David's means, is great prudence. It's real prudence. He trusted God's hatred of blasphemy and God's blessing against a lion and a bear in his past. Something that I've taught you in a, in a slide presentation on a Wednesday evening, reversals of great fortune. When we're, we're supposed to remember examples in the Bible, examples in our brethren's lives, and examples previously in our own lives of God being with us, and those three things ought to give us encouragement to attempt great things for the Lord. He trusted God to bless efforts at madness before Achish of the Philistines. When he was in before Achish of Gath, hoping for a home in the hometown of Goliath, because he's running from Saul, and he hears them muttering in the language of the Philistines about this is the one that killed Goliath. He goes over to a wall, starts to slobber all over himself, and scratches on that wall to pretend that he's insane. And Achish said, I don't need to worry about a madman. Get him out of here. And so he let him go down the street and live in his own house in Achish of the Philistines because David feigned that he was mad in order to accomplish that. But I want you to notice something about your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And what we're doing here is this is the trait of David. There's a time to pray. There's a time to do something. There's a time to do both. And that's most of the time. Is there not a cause? How, it's been preached so many times, we don't sit around and pray for God to give us a job. We go out and hit the street. It takes shoe leather and skin off your knuckles on doors. It takes follow-up and more follow-up. It takes aggressiveness to separate yourself from the, from the rest of the applicants in a stack of resumes. And then we come back and we pray. And we get with a brother and we pray. And we pray. We do both. Balanced prayer and action. Psalm 34. If you have a thorough Bible version, these are not inspired words, but these are words put here by Jewish scribes. You have above Psalm 34, not the translator's outline of the chapter. You have these words. A Psalm of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech of the Philistines, who drove him away, and he departed. He got out with his neck. He got out of Abimelech's court and found himself a house. So here's the prayer, Psalm 34. I'll bet some of you in here have Psalm 34 in your top 10 Psalms. It's in my top 10. And it tells us, when was it composed? When David had to change his behavior and slobber all over himself in order to save his life in Abimelech's court. He trusted God to bless Hushai to overthrow Ahithophel. Right. Two counselors he had. Ahithophel was brilliant. Hushai was very good. Ahithophel went with Absalom. Hushai came with David. David said, Lord, 
defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Hushai, go back to Absalom, pretend you're his counselor, and save my life. And that's a beautiful story in the Bible. Ahithophel gave the better advice. Hushai gave the inferior advice. Absalom went with the inferior advice. Ahithophel went and hung himself because no one had ever taken a, a, a choice other than his own advice. And the Bible tells us very plainly that the reason that Absalom went with Hushai and not with Ahithophel, because God had purposed to overthrow the counsel of Ahithophel Amen. because David had prayed for it, but then David sent Hushai to get it done. This is just... Who else in the Bible do you know did stuff like this? And we get to have all the details about it. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. It's beautiful. Amen. There's many verses written about Hushai and Ahithophel and that competition in front of Absalom and his war cabinet. The secretary of war, the army general was there, Amasa. They were all there. They heard the two opinions. All you got to do is read it to know that Ahithophel is right. Hushai is very emotional and gives this big song and dance about how David's going to be like a bear robbed of her whelps. And if you go hit him right now when he's totally ill-prepared, no one ready for war, um, you know the, heart, the hearts of everyone in Israel, their heart will melt to know that they're facing David. Yeah, 70 years old in a wheelchair. Um, Hushai was awesome. But notice, he balanced prayer and action. Lord, help us to know how to do this. Amen. He encouraged himself in the Lord in 1 Samuel 30 when he was most discouraged. When his own men wanted to stone him, the Bible tells us he encouraged himself in the Lord, but then quickly pursued the enemy. He did both. God will not ordinarily do for you what you should be doing yourself. Trust and work. You have Bible examples, others' examples, and previous experiences yourselves. Run with zeal to obey the Lord and attempt great things for him. If you still doubt, if you're in a situation, well, I just don't know whether I ought to rely more on prayer or more on doing something. If you're still in doubt and you're in a situation where you're doubting, then err on the side of mercy to yourself, but without compromising truth or righteousness. Err on the side of mercy and trust in prayer and wait for God to show himself. Because sometimes the circumstances are great enough that you can say to God, like Asa and Jehoshaphat did, we do not know what to do. And God will say, in one way or another, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Amen. That's beautiful. So there are times where you don't know how to balance the two. Going and getting a job is not one of them. Number 70. Discerning ability to change. Number 70. Trait number 70. Discerning Ability to change. Now, I had another word in there, adaptability, but I didn't want your children having a spelling bee during church. So the four words are discerning ability to change. This is a trait of David, and we're told enough about David to know this one. We live in a changing world. This world is always changing. The Bible warns us about its changes, and we should be able to adapt to them. David taught us a little bit about this. This is trait number 70, discerning. David was able to discern that times had changed, therefore his conduct should change. Discerning ability to change. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, where we have David's emotional 
lamentation, spectacular eulogy for King Saul and Jonathan who were slain on the battlefield by the Philistines. How were they wounded on that battlefield? By Philistine swordsmen? By Philistine slingers? By Philistine archers? So what do we have? 2 Samuel chapter 1, look at verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. We can skip the material in parentheses. That's what they're there for, to follow through with verse 19, which continues the sentence. The beauty of Israel is slain. Because, see, verse 17, and David lamented with this, with this, has a colon at the end of verse 17, introducing verse 19, which are the first words of the lamentation. But in parentheses, we have this stuck in there. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. At this time of emotional grief, when David had learned of the death of Saul and Jonathan, it tells us in parentheses, he was ever the wise leader and ruler of his family and nation and of the tribe of Judah that they would never get caught not having modern military methods at their disposal like they just had when Saul was slain by archers. And so look at that adaptability. Looking, look at the discernment that there's a weapon that we ought to be more skillful in in the tribe of Judah. Now, there was some archers. There were archers in Benjamin. I can show you the verses. I'm not going to for time's sake. You know from 1 Samuel 20 that Jonathan one time pursued his father to find out his father's position about David and then came out to a field and shot arrows telling the young lad that went to chase the arrows, King's sons don't chase arrows. That's one thing I didn't like about archery. I had to go down to the target and bring my bullet back. You know, there's, there's other ways to shoot for lazy men. You have a spotting scope, right, Charlie? A spotting scope so that you don't even have to lift the fat part off the chair. You just go from one scope to the other scope to see the hole in the target. But Jonathan would shoot arrows beyond and short of a young lad and tell the lad where they were, and that was the code language with David hiding in the bushes as to what my dad would like to do to you today. So we know that there was archery in Benjamin and from other places, but look at David wanting to teach his tribe the use of the bow. So he was adaptable to change. Israel knew archery, but not widely in the tribe of Judah. In spite of the great grief and the spectacular lamentation of this chapter, David was ever a wise ruler. Think about this trait in light of the previous one. He balanced prayer and action. See, he just didn't pray about gaining a victory over the Philistines. He adapted one of their weapons and taught the use of it to his tribe. Let's think further about David. Though instituted by Moses, David was not impressed by God's worship in just a tent. David could discern things that could be changed. And he submitted it to God's will. He told Nathan, I want to build God a temple. He just didn't presume to build him a temple. 
He told Nathan, the man of God, I want to build God a temple. It's not fair that I have this beautiful palace and God's being worshipped in a tent. But think about it. He could discern and adapt to change things. David was not the same old, same old, same old every Sunday. David wanted to praise God more and more from Psalm 71 that I began with earlier today. David knew that that tabernacle in all of its intricate design was sent down from heaven by God to Moses and it was God's chosen place of worship, but David wanted to do something better. He didn't presume to change God's word. He asked the man of God and the man of God said, go for it. Then the man of God came back and said, no, your son's going to do it. You can pay for it. And David jumped at the chance to pay for it. But notice his adaptability. Devotions the same way are boring. Our services and content the same way every time is boring. We try to have some change. Variety is the spice of life, it has been said. What are you doing with the Lord? Is it dull? Shake it up. Shake it up. Turn it upside down. Do something different. Add singing. Add a psalm. Take it in a different venue. Leave your house. Are you just the same old, same old? Oh, the Lord every day has to, he has to think to himself, again? Are you kidding me? Again? How about a new song? Did I not inspire that enough times in the book of Psalms? A new song? A new song? I'm just... David was that way. David was not content with anything. He was more and more guy. We want to be more and more. What can we do better? I wrote you in the Friday update. What could you do right now, reading that update, to give the Lord something different right then? I know what I did. What did you do? We want to shake things up sometimes. David was not impressed by God's worship in just a tent. If Jesus asked you to walk on water, do it. Since he has not, you may row, swim, or wait for the boat to get to shore. When we talk about change, if God has told you that he wants you to jump on the water and come to him like he did Peter, then you should jump over the edge of the boat and walk to Jesus. But since he hasn't, you may row to Jesus, swim to Jesus, or wait until the boat gets to shore. Doing the same old thing without perception or appreciation of differences is stupid. Tradition can be stupid because others have done it does not prove it light, does not prove that it's light from God or it's zeal. Right. Consistency can be stupid if it precludes creativity, change, and improvement. Do you know that the Bible has left New Testament format for worship so wide open? It tells us a few things that ought to be part of it, but it doesn't tell us the order. It doesn't tell us that you have to be in two rows of PUs with a center aisle, and they've got to be called PUs. PU with such stuff. We can do it in different ways, and we try to have some variety. This sermon series is variety from John 7. And I knew it when I pulled it on some of you that love the gospel of John. I was hoping you could bear with me. Consider how Solomon warned about missing changes. Look at Psalm 20, Proverbs 27. 
Solomon didn't write any psalms. Proverbs 27. This is important. David. Look at what it put in parentheses. Right there in the, inside his lamentation over Saul, he taught Judah the use of the bow. Proverbs 27, verse 12 is a good start. It's in this chapter. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. That means he changes his conduct because he sees risk. But the simple pass on and are punished. Well, I, my, dad, my daddy worked this job at this factory, and he retired and got a gold watch. It was a cheap Timex gold watch, but he got a gold watch after 30 years, and he retired from Ford Motor Company, and I've worked at Ford Motor Company for 15 years, and I'm just going to keep up and go to work like my daddy did. And if it's good enough for daddy, it's good enough for me. You're a loser. You're a loser, and you're about to lose your job. Because didn't you notice, didn't you notice down the street that there was a new dealership that you had never seen before? I'm talking about Detroit, Michigan, and I'm talking about the 1970s. Did you see that little Datsun dealership in Ypsilanti, Michigan? Yeah, the one they threw the cement block through. That's not going to last. Datsun's going to continue to produce cars, and they know how to produce cars a whole lot cheaper than you do at Ford. You better be thinking. Okay? A, a prudent man foresees the evil. He sees the Datsun dealership. Ah, the American auto industry is no longer alone in producing cars in the world. I should be careful. They weren't, and there's not very many people employed in the U.S. auto industry anymore, other than the foreign automakers that have brought their plants to the U.S., right. like the one here in our city. That was in verse 12 of this chapter, but the verses I really want are Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 23. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds, for riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. Changes take place in politics, changes take place in business, changes take place in industries, and you ought to be attentive to it. We've taught it before in men's meetings where we would typically cover material like this. I'm bringing it up right now because it's, it's in line with David's ability to change and his discernment of changing times. Yet at the same time, we don't have to worry about too much change. If you worry so much about change, you won't ever... Adam, it's Ecclesiastes 11.4. If you're always observing the weather, you'll never sow and you'll never reap. So the Bible tells us, on the other hand, if you're always looking at the clouds, what's the story of the little chicken? Chicken little. Chicken little. The sky is going to fall on chicken little. And so if you're always observing the clouds, you won't sow and you won't go and do what you should do. Yet, we should be discerning of changing times and knowing what we ought to do. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we're told about a group of men that understood the times and what Israel ought to do. Think about schooling methods. Schooling methods, schooling curriculum, all those, all those things offer changes every year. There, there are so many different ways that you can do schooling. Wedding options. We have such a variety of ways to get wedded in this church because God doesn't care how we get wedded. He just wants to know how you're going to be wed afterwards, how you're going to maintain your wedding, the number of children you have. Things change, brethren. Times change. You don't have 160 acres given to you by the U.S. government that you need 16 children to give 
10 acres to each of them to go work every day. You don't have that situation. Wise men in the Bible change. You say about things as important as the number of children? Are you kidding? You think that's important? How about marriage itself? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.26 said, It would be better if all men and women were like me, single, because of the present distress. 1 Samuel 7, verse 26. He was able to understand that at Corinth, there was a present distress on that church that should affect the way they looked at marriage and stay single. Even virgins being kept at home and not allowed to marry for the sake of being prudent. All of this, we've taught it before. It's in the Word of God. Quickly, number 71. You're going to have to scrounge now for space on, on the little handout, and I'm sorry about that. I'm excited to go home and get to work on number 76 because of the psalm that the Lord led us to this morning. David was never content. He was going to praise the Lord. Yes, I am excited. I just trust the Lord. I don't care when he gives me an idea. I just want an idea from his word. Number 71, thought outside the box. Thought outside the box. The box in Israel was to use a sling. The box in Israel was to use a sword. The box in Israel was to use a spear. The box in Israel was to use a shield. Well, he thought outside the box and brought up archery. I can reach out and touch them this way without getting touched. Thought outside the box very quickly. David thought outside the box regarding Goliath, the ark, dancing, Michael, temple, arrows. Each man in the army from Saul down, even Jonathan, allowed Goliath 40 days to open his blasphemous mouth against the God of Israel. 40 days! Every man in that army stood still and let that tripe come out of that man's mouth. David reacted instantly. He thought outside the box. You know, he didn't care what the majority was doing. He did not care what everyone was doing around him. He didn't care what his peers were doing. He didn't care about peer pressure. There was enormous peer pressure applied on David as soon as he arrived at the army. As soon as he opened his mouth, his older brother Eliab said, You naughty little child, you ought to be back home taking care of the kittens in the back 40. The sheep in the back 40. What are you doing here? You're here because of the naughtiness of your heart and your pride. That's peer pressure. That's enormous peer pressure. That's the oldest brother, number one. David's number eight brother. David didn't care because he thought outside the box. Someone needs to shut that man's mouth. David reacted instantly, trusting God to bless his sling this time to reach out and touch him. Saul, that's Goliath. Saul did did not move the Ark of the Covenant for the 40 years of his reign. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in a man's house near Beth Shemesh after it had been taken under under Eli, the high priest. Saul didn't move it. As soon as David's in office, where did this man come from? I want every one of you to be like David. Where did David come from? What, What was going on up here? Saul had set a precedent that kings think about precedent. Do these words mean something to you? Precedent, tradition, the state of the union, what government officials ought and ought not to do, the handbook of appropriate conduct. George's, I mean, Saul's maxims. You don't move the Ark of the Covenant. What did David do? As soon as he's in office, wants to move the Ark of the Covenant. He thought outside the box. 
What possessed him to rip off the royal clothing of his office and dance mightily in the street before that ark? Why did he want to act like a king? Why did he want to act like a devotee of the Lord Jehovah of heaven? Since God had not written it or mentioned it, why did David think of a temple? God himself admitted, and you read it last evening, I hope, that he had not given any indication for a temple at any time, anywhere, by any how. And yet David thought of it. What are you going to do in your devotions that hasn't been thought of before, that you're going to think up and give to the Lord? What can we do in our church? We do some crazy things. And we haven't had one in a long time. We have fatted calfies. But, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm going to escape that noose that I'm tying together for myself right now since I'm the pastor, that we had one on Tuesday. We had a fatted calf feast on Tuesday. We had a large number of meats at that time of fellowship that we had on Tuesday. We want to be able to think outside the box. David thought outside the box. David was not content with the effectiveness of a sling when he saw that archery worked for the Philistines. Convention is good and not to be ignored, but convention can also mean a limited view of things. We want to have an expanded view. Your mind cannot be confined to what others have done or are doing in any field. Be inventive. We must, that doesn't mean to change God's word. God has given us latitude. God has given us latitude as families, and God's given us latitude as a church. We want to use that latitude for his greater honor and glory to the extent he's given it to us. We must be willing to react to the spirit and word in ways others ignore for fear. Sometimes we've had services, usually second services, where I will have two or three of you scheduled to get in the pulpit to praise the Lord. And then a fourth comes up and taps me on the shoulder and says, May I? Of course you may. And then a fifth comes up. And pretty soon there's no time for preaching. Is that possible to have a church service like that? Amen. Oh, yes. Have we been blessed doing things like that? Because we're adaptable, flexible, and we think outside the box. This pulpit is wide open to the men of this church. The Lord help us. David was very conventional in relating to people because convention's been taught at men's meetings. David was very conventional in relating to people, thus his widespread popularity everywhere he went. But he was not so conventional when considering what could be done for God's glory. If I were to get some of this royal junk off and get out there and dance with all my might, can I give these people a better example of how much their king loves God? Oh, yes. Can he also expose the hypocrites in his own house? Oh, yes. Michael, Saul's daughter, despised him in her heart. How could you despise a man like David dancing with all of his might before the ark? Because you were from that kind of a family. Circumstances are constantly changing. Can you recognize them like Paul? These are closely related that I gave to you about the present distress at Corinth. Wise men understand the times and know what ought to be done. There is a time for everything under heaven. Is that taught in Ecclesiastes chapter 3? A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time for this, a time for that. There's a time. Do you know those times rightly? Let your life, your family, your church be known for exceeding the norm for God and men. We don't want to be normal. We don't want to be average. We want to be exceptional, like David was exceptional. There's no New Testament command for fatted calf feasts. 
the way that we describe them and the way that we hold them directly, but we have good uses for them, don't we? The Lord allows us that. We don't require it of any other church. When we take back an excluded brother or sister and we have a fatted calf feast for them and we get them a piece of jewelry, we get them shoes for their feet and we get them a new set of clothing, you know where we're getting all those ideas from. We're getting it from Luke chapter 15. But the Apostle Paul didn't say that was a requirement for a New Testament church. We do it because we want to give the Lord as much as we can and to give him more than the New Testament requires. David wanted to give the Lord more than the New Testament required, though we will not alter God's word. Then, now listen, because we give fatted calf feasts, we keep Jude 1, 10 through 12, that says New Testament churches are to have feasts of charity, and that is not the Lord's Supper. Do you know of any other church that even cares about having feasts of charity? Yet we end up having them, and we call them fatted calf feasts because of the language of Luke 15. We're, we're nothing. We're scoundrels. We're a bunch of ugly sinners saved by grace. But we want to give the Lord the best that we can. What can you add to your schedule this week to give God something creatively new? What can you add to your schedule this week to give God something creatively new? Here's what we've covered. Number 68, he understood God's chastening. He didn't curse or quit. He loved God's chastening and understood it and considered it a blessing and that God in faithfulness had done it to him. Number 69, he balanced prayer and action. He knew when he ought to do something, he knew when he ought to pray for something. He knew there were things that could only be prayed for. He knew there were things that he ought to jump up and do. He balanced prayer and action. Number 70, he had discerning ability to change. He could see a change in circumstances. He could see a change in opportunities, and he would adapt to it. And he thought outside the box. He was not going to be content with being, doing what everyone else has done. You know, I believe the new facilities that we're going to have is not, are not going to have a center, a center aisle. Will all of you be able to handle that? We're going, to, we're going to have three rows of pews. We're going to break tradition. To take a baptistry and get rid of it? Don't Baptist, aren't baptistries supposed to be up behind the pulpit? Not here. Sold it. The Craigslist. Rip that steeple off this building. Sell it, get some cash out of it, let somebody else put their phallic symbol up on top of their building. Let's be different. Let's give the Lord the best that we can. You men, you know that the pulpit is always open. If you want to get up and praise the Lord, you can do it in this church. You know the verses that we use, they come out of the book of Psalms. Come out of Psalms where it says, I will praise thee before much people. I will get before the great congregation to praise the Lord. You say, where is that taught in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The Apostle Paul addressed the Corinthian church and said, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath this, hath that. Just make sure that it's all done one at a time and it's done profitably and in proper order. He didn't say stop doing it. And so we read that and we adjust. We, there should be more amens. You know, can we exceed? Can we exceed a little bit? Can we have a little bit more and more in the way of amens? I don't need amens. I'm only looking for one amen, and you can't give it to me. The only amen I care about is when I meet the Lord Jesus Christ. However, amens are contagious. Why don't you say them? Paul assumed that real Christians would say amen because he just assumed it. So he said, I will not allow speaking in tongues in a public assembly because those that don't know the language will not know when to say Amen. amen.
May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.